Please take your Bibles with me this evening and turn to Jeremiah 44. Today's chapter is packed pretty full, but packed pretty full of some things which we have seen throughout the course of the book. Some things are going to sound pretty familiar to those of you are, who have been following along in the series. Uh, it's packed full of idolatry. It's packed full of pride. It's packed full of self-deceit. It's packed full of lies. It's packed full of willing ignorance. It's packed full of disobedience. Uh, pretty par for the course for a lot of what Jeremiah is going through. Not himself, but the, with, with the nation. We might even at this point be somewhat, if I can use the word, inoculated to such things. It, it, it's become old hat. That it may not even necessarily phase us as we read through the book of Jeremiah. By the time you get to chapter 44, when you read of, uh, of rebellion, when you read uh, of, of sin, when you read of the hardness of hearts, uh, it may not even phase you as, as perhaps it did at the beginning of the book. I know at the beginning of the book I walked away from some of these messages a little bit down. Uh, we always brought it back to, to a, a measure of, of the mercy of the Lord, of the love of the Lord, of the encouragement uh, uh, that, that we can find in the Lord and, and, and the determination to do what is right. But, but, but there's so much sorrow in this book. Hence, Lamentations coming next. But what keeps these offenses fresh, if I can say it that way, is what keeps the sensitivity of our hearts to these things, or what ought to keep these things fresh, is that the self-deceit and the disobedience continues, even when the very, of the, word, the very word of the Lord confronts them with the realities of judgment. And what I mean by that is this. Um, we have traced the prophecies of Jeremiah through decades, starting with Josiah and then into his three sons. And we've seen, particularly in the days of Jehoiakim, in the days of Zedekiah, those 11-year reigns there, um, we've seen three deportations, right? We saw 605, Nebuchadnezzar come in and take Daniel and Ananiah, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And they go in 605, and they're now in Babylon, along with many of the princes. And, and that, that should have been a wake-up call. It wasn't. Then we see the next deportation, Five, 592, I believe. It's, it's not coming to me off the top of my head at the moment. Um, the next deportation, that's where Ezekiel goes. And now he's over in the River Kibar, and he's writing by the River Kibar in a, what's effectively a refugee camp um, outside of 597, 597, outside of Babylon. And then we have that, that culminating effect toward this last and final deportation. Um, no, it's 587, so it, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm getting my, my dates all messed up. It's 605. 590-something and, 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 and 587. Uh, anyway, you all know what I'm talking about. And then we have that final, the culminating uh, deportation where the temple is burned, raised to the ground. The city is no more. And you would think, finally, at that point, they're going to listen to Jeremiah. When the captain of the guard of the Babylonians 
goes into the city and says, I'm looking for this man, Jeremiah. Nebuchadnezzar has explicitly mentioned him by name to pull him out of wherever he is and to, to, to give him freedom. You'd think at this point, the nation of Israel is going to say, wow, Jeremiah is right. He's been right this whole time. The word of the Lord is right. We need to, we need to do something about that. But of course, that's not what we found. We found it for just that tiny little space, just that, that, that small little bit of time in the days of Gemariah until he was assassinated, at which point they say, we need to go down to Egypt. God says, don't go down to Egypt. He says, if you go down to Egypt, you'll be cursed. If you stay here, I will bless you. I will protect you. But they are not humbled. The prophet has told them these things time and time again, but they are not humbled. And, and, and that self-deceit should cause us to perk our ears once again because we are not beyond such self-deceits. We are not beyond such things. So ready yourself today for a bit of review with an opportunity. The application is going to go in a different direction because I'm, I'm a little tired of being sad. But... We'll bubble up some of the most important attributes tonight of spirituality. You want to be a spiritual person, a spiritual man, a spiritual woman. We're going to bubble up an essential attribute of that this evening, and that is humility. Let's begin digging in to the text. Chapter 44, verses 1 through 6, the Bible says this, The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews which dwelt in the land of Egypt, which dwelt at Migdol and Tophanes and at Noph, and in the country of Pathros, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Ye have seen all the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem and upon all the cities of, Ju of Judah. And behold... This day they are de a desolation, and no man dwelleth therein, because of their wickedness which they have committed to provoke me to anger, in that they went to burn incense and to serve other gods whom they knew not, neither yet they, ye, nor your fathers. Howbeit I sent unto you all my servants the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, O oh, do not this abominable thing that I hate. But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear to turn from their wickedness to burn no incense to other God, unto other gods. Wherefore, my fury and mine anger was poured forth and was kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, and they are wasted and desolate as at this day. So we're introduced to the word of the Lord, which came to the prophet Jeremiah. And we find that this message is directed toward the Jews who dwell primarily in the land of Egypt. Those who, against the word of the Lord, which we studied last week in chapter 43, yet fled to Egypt, ignored him, fled to Egypt, went there. And of course, we recall from last week, uh, Jeremiah hiding those great stones uh, in, in the, the threshold or, or, or underneath the steps of, of the Pharaoh's palace there and saying that Nebuchadnezzar would sit there on that place and that Egypt would not be um, uh, exempt from the Lord's judgment, uh, nor would they who had fled from the message of the Lord. And God's message is this. You have seen all the evil that I brought upon Jerusalem and all the evil that I brought upon the cities of Judah. You see now that they are desolate and you know that this is because they provoked me to anger. You know because Jeremiah has been telling you this for decades. They have served other gods. You have served other gods. You've been idolatrous. You have been disobedient. So as God summarized, 
summarizes, he sent his servants time and again, faithfully and continually imploring the nation to stop doing the abominable things which he hates, but they would not listen. And so God, his, the cup of his wrath being filled, poured it out upon the nation, upon the city of Jerusalem, which is now in ruins. Now, as far as clear evidences go, the destruction of the nation ranks pretty high up there, right? In evidences that God's word is true. God has not hid himself here, nor did God hide himself from the remnant when he continued to speak through the prophet Jeremiah and call the remnant to remain in the land for their own good. And of course, we already saw they ignored that. So God is summarizing here uh, their spiritual failures. And we continue in verses 7 through 10. Therefore now thus saith the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, wherefore commit ye this great evil against your souls to cut off from you man and woman, child and suckling out of Judah, to leave you none to remain, and that ye provoke me unto wrath with the works of your hands, burning incense unto other gods in the land of Egypt, whither ye be gone to dwell, that ye might cut yourselves off, and that ye might be a curse and a reproach among all the nations of the earth. Have ye forgotten the wickedness of your fathers, and the wickedness of the kings of Judah, and the wickedness of their wives, and your own wickedness, and the wickedness of your wives? which they have committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. They are not humbled even unto this day. Neither have they feared nor walked in my law nor in my statutes that I set before you and before your fathers. In light of God's wrath against the perpetual disobedience of the land and the tremendous judgment that God then brought upon them, God asks the remnant... Why do you continue to rebel? And I, 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 the way he says it is so insightful. He, he says in verse 7, Why commit this evil, this great evil against your souls? They are working against themselves. They are operating in contradiction to their own well-being by doing these things. So why continue to rebel? Why Sever yourself from God's blessing. Why go to Egypt when not only has God told you not to go, but has specifically said, if you don't go to Egypt, I'll bless you. And if you do go, I will judge you. God says, have you forgotten, in verse 9, the wickedness of the kings of Judah, their wives, your own wickedness, the wickedness of your own wives? And then we find this statement in verse 10. They are not humbled even unto this day. We're, we're stubborn people, aren't we? We humans. The nation of Israel went through three deportations, decades of Jeremiah saying these things were going to be happening. And while Jeremiah is saying it in Jerusalem, Ezekiel saying the exact same thing in the river Kibar. And while Ezekiel is ministering there by the river of Kibar, Daniel is in Babylon ministering unto Nebuchadnezzar as is Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael. They're all, all the prophets of the Lord united in this message and yet they are not humbled unto this day. They watch the walls of the city crumble before their eyes. They watch the gates burn. They watch the temple toppled. 
and they are not humbled unto that day. They continue to seek their own way. And, it, and this is a difficult thing to read because hindsight is twenty twenty, right? And we see it so clearly and they're being so rebellious, but it's also difficult from an emotional standpoint when one perhaps considers those in your own life who have seen time and again their own path lead to sorrow. The, the wages of sin is death. We mentioned, at least regularly of late, that was not written in the context of a group of unbelievers. That was written in chapter 6 of Romans, which begins with, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? To believers, the wages of sin is death. It's just as true in the believer as it is in the unbeliever. Separation from fellowship. And so it's an emotional thing, can be, to think of friends, loved ones, their own lives, living out the consequences of their poor decisions. And, 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 you know, they don't see it either. They are living, committing great evil against their own souls. Maybe some in here living, committing great evil against your own soul. And you don't see it. And this ought to be humbling because if Judah was there persisting in selfishness and self-deception and they didn't see it, and if perhaps some people you know are there persisting in selfishness and self-deception and they don't see it, the question becomes, what are my blind spots? Where am I doing the very same thing? And who has God sent to tell me and I've walked away and said, yeah, I don't think so. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And where, where, when has God revealed through His Spirit and the Word of God those things? And you say, yeah, but you know things are going pretty well. I'm, I'm doing okay. And we just move on. As James says, they behold themselves and go their way and straightway forget what manner of man they are. So this ought to be humbling, and, and it is this. It is this reminder. It is, it is this reality that, that should keep the drone of judgment from becoming trite, from, from us just passing along these chapters of Scripture. Because if 44 chapters into the book of Jeremiah, the nation of Israel is still struggling, then where are we struggling? Have we begun to dull our own ears to some elements of the Word of God? Have, 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 has has our, our blade been dulled? Where do we need our own revival? Verses 11 through 14. Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will set my face against you for evil and to cut off all Judah, and I will take the remnant of Judah and have set their faces to go into the, uh, excuse me, that have set their faces to go into the land of Egypt to sojourn there, and they shall all be consumed and fall in the land of Egypt. They shall even be consumed by the sword and by famine. They shall die from the least even unto the greatest by the sword and by the famine and they shall be an execration and an astonishment and a curse and a reproach. For I will punish them that dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem by the sword 
by the famine and by the pestilence. Boy, we've seen that a lot. Going all the way back to the beginning, sword, famine, pestilence, right? Verse 14, so that none of the remnant of Judah which are gone into the land of Egypt to sojourn there shall escape or remain that they should return into the land of Judah to the which they have a desire to return to dwell there. For none shall return, but such, shall, uh, but such as shall escape. So we read this familiar message, and I don't say that in any way to minimize it, but this is so much of the same. The sword, the famine, and the pestilence have chased Israel now for those decades. It chased them in the land as God promised that it would come to pass. And now the very thing that they feared has come to pass. It has chased them. God's judgment, the sword, the famine, the pestilence is chasing them down to Egypt because of their rebellion. And he tells the remnant that none of them who are gone into the land of Egypt shall escape or remain. They will all pay for the rebellion with their lives. Now, naturally, the point of the prophetic word is not to just pronounce doom. This is something very important to understand about prophecy. Where there is judgment in prophecy, there is always hope and restoration. Always. Look for it because it's there. God does not prophesy of judgment so that people can just know of their doom. God prophesies of their judgment because he is calling for repentance. That is the essence of why the prophecies exist. And so we see these prophecies and of course we see in them a call to return. That they would humble themselves and repent. And throughout the course of the book, we have seen any number of responses. We've seen anger. People have desired to kill Jeremiah. We've seen apathy. People have ignored Jeremiah. Uh, But I don't know yet that we've experienced in the book, with the possible exception of when Jehoiakim is listening to Baruch read the words of God, and as he's reading it, they're cutting it up and throwing it into the fire. I don't know that we've seen the kind of hardness that we're about to read on the hearts as we do here in just a moment. Verses 15 through 19. Then all the men which knew that their wives had burned incense unto other gods and all the women that stood by a great multitude, even all the people that dwelt in the land of Egypt in Pathras, answered Jeremiah saying, As for the word that thou hast spoken unto us in the name of the Lord, we will not hearken unto thee. But we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth to burn incense unto the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her. As we have done, we and our fathers and our, our kings and our princes in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, for then had we plenty of victuals and were well and saw no evil. But since we left off to burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her, we have wanted all things and have been consumed by the sword and by the famine. And when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings under her, did we make her cakes to worship her and pour out drink offerings under her without our men? There's a lot going on here. So much so I almost thought that I was going to stop here and preach a message on this and I very, I very well could have. And perhaps it, it was a mistake not to because there's so much going on here. But what we find, the response of the people here is direct defiance. They're not pretending anymore. And it's interesting to see just how this plays out because I've seen it play out in my counseling sessions before. The men take God's declaration as a personal affront to their wives. Their wives were the ones that were burning incense to the queen of heaven. 
And we've talked about the mother-child cult that undergirded this idea of the queen of heaven. We talked about that way back in Jeremiah chapter 7. So if you want to go back and remind yourself about the mother-child cult and what that was and, and, and the perversion of, of, in fact, the virgin birth and all of those things, you can go back to Jeremiah 7 and, and, and learn of that. We trace the origins of this false worship system all the way back really to the Tower of Babel by tradition, at least. Traced it forward to the Roman Catholic Church. And then to modern-day witchcraft, of course. So we won't address it again. But do notice it was their wives who were deeply involved in this cult. And, and Ezekiel speaks of this cult as well. Ezekiel speaks of the women who, with their backs to the temple, who were worshiping and weeping for Tammuz. Uh, that, that, that idea of weeping for Tammuz, that's a part of the mother-child cult. So Ezekiel saw in the visions of the temple the very thing that Jeremiah was speaking of here and, and saw in reality in his day this mother-child cult system. So the women were, were, were doing these things. They were weeping for Tammuz. Uh, they were burning uh, offerings and pouring out drink offerings to the queen of heaven. And the men, instead of being offended that their wives were doing this, were, were more offended that Jeremiah was calling out their wives. And this is not uncommon. I've had this happen, as I mentioned in counseling before, where an issue is brought up and the wife is at fault and the man, for any number of reasons, possibly to avoid the fact that he has been a poor leader, possibly to avoid the fact that, that he himself has not called her out on this, gets indignant at me for, for, for attacking his wife instead of being indignant at the sin that is taking place. This is not uncommon. And so they... they get indignant for their wives. It's also not uncommon in many cases uh, for women who tend to be the more spiritually sensitive among us, to be more spiritually involved among us, especially as it relates to the mother-child cult thing that, that, that in the mother-child cult particularly, women would often be the priestesses and the leaders of such cults. When culture gets to be this way, where women are the, 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 the most spiritual among us, where men are generally apathetic, men lack the courage to do what's right, right uh, but they're willingly defend their wives doing wrong, we see an entirely spiritually backward culture. And we're there in the United States today. We are. We are an entirely spiritually backward culture where women are leading, where men are, 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 don't have the courage to step up and do what's right, but have every courage to defend their wife leading, uh, where they will take a front for their wife, but not take a front at their wife's sin, where everything is on its head. And that's what we're seeing here. Everything has been turned on its head. And it's just getting crazier and crazier. These men will say, they, they, they say here, we will do whatever we want. We will burn incense to the queen of heaven. Our wives will do the same. We will make offerings to her. We will do what we want. But notice this. They say, we will continue to do these things as our fathers did. And, and again, I say, it gets crazier and crazier. They say, we will do these things as our fathers did when Jerusalem was full of food and plenty. So notice what they just did here. They just turned everything on its head again. Not only have they turned, not only are their, their, their domestic lives turned on their heads, but their spiritual lives and their understanding of judgment has just been turned on its head. They've just called evil good and good evil. What they have just said is this. They say, in fact, when our fathers were in that deep idolatry, when they were faithful to the queen of heaven, when they were burning incense regularly, things were really good. 
And, and, and it must be that the reason why we're here in Egypt instead of there in Jerusalem is because we stopped burning incense to the Queen of Heaven. That they, they took what was the long-suffering of God in the days of their rebellion, and they said that long-suffering was actually the Queen of Heaven blessing us. And then they took, the, the, when, when, they, when they, they got so busy with the, the siege and the evil and everything going around them that they, they didn't even have time, they didn't have time for their pagan gods, right? Because they're too busy trying to live. And then they attribute that to them stopping the pagan idolatry rather than the judgment of God coming to pass. And so they say, well, we're going to double down on the pagan idolatry because remember back when our fathers did it and life was good. It's, it's all just one big upside down mess. Darkness begets darkness. Sin begets sin. Wickedness begets wickedness. And a hardened heart loses perspective. A hardened heart loses perspective. And, and it's all just a big jumbled mess now. So they say we're going to double down on our, our idolatry in order to attempt to incur again the favor of the queen of heaven, which apparently we lost because we're under judgment. And the women excuse it. Notice what they say right here at the end. Could we have worshipped the queen of heaven if our husbands had not allowed it? They say, did we make her cakes to worship her and pour out drink offerings under her without our men? So the women excuse their behavior by appealing to their authority, the authority of the men, and saying, our men have allowed us to do this. The men excuse their behavior by appealing to the example of their father, saying, our fathers did this and things were good. And then they excuse their anger at Jeremiah because Jeremiah has insulted their wives. So now they've excused their anger, they've excused their indignance, they've excused their apathy, they've excused their hardness of hearts, and they've even excused away all of the judgment that they have been under. Wow. And next thing you know, the whole situation is just one big jumble of pride, of misdirection, of diversion, and perhaps you've seen that before. Maybe in your own families, maybe in yourself. Maybe in churches that you have been in or in general circles of fellowship. And God forgive us for that. As I said, that could be a whole message in and of itself, but I don't want to dwell on that tonight. Uh, we, we've talked about it. We've talked about it before. We've been there. We've, we've made those applications. I'd like, to, I'd like to move on. So Jeremiah responds in verses 20 through 23. Then Jeremiah said unto all the people, to the men and to the women and to all the people which have given him that had given him that answer, saying, The incense that ye burned in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, ye and your fathers, your king and your princes and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them and came it not into his mind? So that the Lord could no longer bear because of the evil of your doings and because of the abominations which ye had committed. Therefore is your land a desolation and an astonishment and a curse without an inhabitant as at this day, because ye have burned incense, and because ye have sinned against the Lord, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, nor walked in his law, nor his statutes, nor his testimonies. Therefore, this evil is happened unto you as at this day. So Jeremiah attempts to reorient their thinking. Hey, he tells them, no, 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 you've got it all backwards. That it was the very acts of idolatry in the land that brought this judgment upon them, right? Jeremiah is trying to, to bring about this perspective again, that he's telling them, no, 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 no. It's not, it's not that the judgment came because you stopped being faithful to the queen of heaven. It was, that the, the, it was the, 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 the faithfulness of the queen of heaven that has brought about this 
this, uh, this evil. It was those very abominations for which the land is desolate. We know this, and, and they knew it too. But sin does something to the soul. Psalm 106, verse 15, the psalmist speaks of the people of Israel in the days of the Exodus, in the wilderness, and they murmured for flesh to eat. Do you remember that account? And in Psalm 106, verse 15, the psalm says this, and he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Leanness into their soul. A darkness begotten by darkness. God gave them what they wanted carnally, but they lost something spiritually for the carnality that they pursued. He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. The reaping in the soul of what was sown by sin. If the word of God is the light into our path and the lamp into our feet, then a rejection of the word of God is to step into de facto darkness. These are the words which Isaiah spoke in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And this is what happens when men and women reject the counsel of the Lord. We spoke last week about our tendency to judge Scripture rather than allowing Scripture to judge us. We can begin to justify ourselves. And soon what is evil is called good and what is good is called evil. And those who walk in darkness are convinced that they're walking in the light. And those who taste the bitterness of sin perceive the sin to be the only sweetness which exists in their life. And they blame the bitterness upon whatever remnants of truth might remain. And so we live in a society today that is, is tasting the bitterness of sin, but is interpreting it as the only sweetness. And then they look at those Christians and they say, they're the problem. And they look at the Bible and they say, if only it wasn't for that hate book, then we'd really be happy. And it all gets turned on its head. And the Bible says, it, the Bible says as much. There should be nothing surprising in what we see in society. There should be nothing really surprising about what we're seeing in Jeremiah. God has said it to be so. And this isn't just something that did happen. It's not even something that does happen. This is something that happens, that is happening. It's happening in the lives of people right now. There are people who are walking down that path right now perhaps someone you know who, who needs to be called away from that path because they're walking into that darkness. Maybe it's someone that's there and they need to be, we need to be there, we need to be calling. Shining that light in whatever way we can. That's what Jeremiah is doing here. He's still shining the light because God hasn't given up. And God forbid that we would. And this is something certainly that can happen to any of us as well. And there is a virtue, however, that guards against such dangers, one of several, but one of those virtues is humility, which is where we're getting with this. So Jeremiah reminds them that their actions have brought about their own consequences. He continues in verses 24 through 30. He says, Moreover, Jeremiah said unto all the people, 
to all the women, hear the word of the Lord, all Judah that are in the land of Egypt. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, Ye and your wives have both spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hand, saying, We will surely perform our vows that we have vowed to burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her. Ye will surely accomplish your vows and surely perform your vows. Therefore, hear ye the word of the Lord, all Judah, that dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, saith the Lord, that my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, The Lord God liveth. Behold, I will watch over them for evil and not for good. And all the men of Judah that are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by the famine until there be an end of them. Yet a small number that escaped the sword shall return out of the land of Egypt into the land of Judah, and all the remnant of Judah that are gone into the land of Egypt to sojourn there shall know whose words shall stand, mine or theirs. And this shall be a sign unto you, saith the Lord, that I will punish you in this place, that ye may know that my words shall surely stand against you for evil. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will give... Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies and into the hand of them that seek his life, as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, his enemy, and that sought his life. So God delivers this message to the people. First, he tells them that he knows that they're going to continue in their sin. He says, I know you're going to perform the vows that you said you're going to perform. You have vowed to worship the queen of heaven with a renewed vigor, and I know that's a vow you're going to perform. The hardness of their hearts reflects in the fact that they are confident in their own decision. They don't think they're doing anything wrong, so God says they will reap the consequences. He tells them that his name will no more be heard in their mouths that he will watch over them for evil, that the land will be consumed again with sword and famine until it is, is at last at the end. And he says, however, a small number, a small remnant will return. They will escape. And they'll return only enough to be a witness to the world whether or not God's words were true or their words were true. Who was right? Was it that they were not, sacri- not, not worshiping the queen of heaven enough? Or was it that they should not have been worshiping the queen of heaven at all? Which person is right? Well, God says that small remnant that will return, they will testify that my words were true. They will testify of the truth of the prophet. And God says, just to make sure it's obvious, I'll give them a sign. Give them a sign that God's word would stand. He says, here's the sign. The king of Egypt, Pharaoh Hophra, will fall at the hand of his enemies in the same way Zedekiah fell at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, we've seen that prophecy for several chapters now, that Egypt would fall. And so, thus is the message of the Lord to the nation of Israel. We have considered in passing these elements of of a reminder as it relates to sin and the nature of sin and the nature of darkness and the judgment of darkness. Let's go in a little bit of a different direction with our application this evening. Point number one. Let's talk about humility. Last week we talked about repentance. This week we get to talk about humility. We must understand just how important humility is to a proper relationship with God. 
how important humility is to proper alignment with God and his word. Let's establish a working definition of humility first. Humility is a deep sense of one's own unworthiness, a deep sense of one's own limitations, an understanding not just of the evidence of one's own limitations, but also of the potential and unknown limitations that I don't even know about. And we need to carefully consider the concept of humility as it relates to this idea. Humility is a difficult thing to wrap our minds around because it strikes to the heart of our intentions more than it does of our actions. May I say that again? Humility strikes more to the heart of our intentions than it does to our actions. And let me explain what I mean by that. Humility is not me putting myself down. Uh, It's not, you know, somebody comes up and says, hey, pastor, a good sermon. And I say, oh, you know, thank you, but no, thank you. I can be just as proud as can be in my heart while simultaneously deflecting all praise in my actions. We need to understand that humility is an outworking of intentions, of of the heart. Humility is not about me putting myself down as much as it is about me operating within a context of understanding about my place in relation to God and others. Humility is not about me pretending I'm not good at something I'm good at. I can acknowledge I'm good at something and still be a humble person. Humility is not about me refusing to acknowledge the things that I have done, pretending as though I have not accomplished what I have accomplished. That's not humility. Humility is operating within a context of understanding my place, my, the place of my accomplishments, the place of my skills in relation to the God who I serve. Humility is about me living in a constant acknowledgement that God is greater And that anything I can do, anything I have done, any talents and abilities I might have, any accomplishments I may have brought about is little more than an extension of the goodness of God in my life. It is about me properly adjusting my accomplishments, me properly adjusting my skills, me properly uh, adjusting my, my work and my character to the nature of the one who enabled it in me. That anything and everything that I do, everything I can do, anything that I, I, I have is a gift from God, is given for a purpose, and is best served to glorify God and draw attention to Him and not me. And the scriptures testify that humility brings with it great honor before God. And this is one of what, we, what I often describe as the, the Christian paradoxes. That to be great with God, we need to be humble. And so we read in the Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 33, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom and before honor is humility. So we read in Proverbs 16, 19, better is it to be of an humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. So we read in Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty and before honor is humility. So we read in Proverbs 22, verse 4, by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. So we read in Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. The Proverbs give us these wonderful general principles contrasting humility with pride. 
emphasizing the honor and the superiority of a life of humility, of acknowledging regardless of my accomplishments, both my unworthiness unto those accomplishments and my limitations even within the scope of those accomplishments. This is what keeps me from thinking that I'm entitled to things. So that if I have accomplished great things in my life and the Lord takes away that, that, that capacity, that ability, or, or even the Lord marginalizes that accomplishment. And what I mean by that is, is, is as, as we're seeing today, if you live long enough or if, if you exist in history long enough, you, you get to go from being the hero to the villain. Right? Thomas Jefferson has gone from the hero to the villain George Washington has gone from the hero to the villain in our backwards culture, right? These men who have been for some time uh, 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 upheld in our culture as men of character and men of value are, are now, their, their, their statues are being torn down, their streets are being renamed, their buildings are being renamed. People are renouncing them. It's just a name. It's just a reputation. Now, we bring that to the short term. We bring that to our own accomplishments in life. And if at some point those are stripped from us, the question is, how do we respond? The humble man says, not have I gotten, but what I have received. As Job says, naked came out of my mother's womb, naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. The proud man says, Lord, where's my due? <laughs> I earned that. I deserve that. The humble man recognizes his limitations, recognizes his incapacities, recognizes the Lord's blessing upon him and says, the Lord hath given, the Lord hath taken away. Material honor is drawn from the well of pride. Spiritual honor is drawn from the well of humility. And this is what keeps the humble man from seeking that material honor at the expense of, expense of spiritual honor. This is what we need to understand as we consider humility together. Humility is a spiritual virtue, not just an emotional disposition. The spiritual rewards of humility, however, are very significant. And we want them. You want them. I guarantee it. The Word of God guarantees it. So our Lord tells us on the Sermon on the Mount, verses 3 through 6 of Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. They that exercise themselves in the spiritual virtue of humility, who are poor in spirit, acknowledging their own unworthiness and incapacities before the Lord, acknowledging their own limitations, no matter how great they are. Those who mourn and are meek and who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they are those who are exalted before the Lord. Humility is not a virtue in this world. This world exalts strength, dominance. And that's really the whole point, isn't it? That God has seen fit to confound the wise that God has seen fit to take the weak things of this world to confound the things which are strong, that God uses the foolishness of preaching to bring people to himself, that God uses flawed vessels that ought to keep us humble because thank God he uses flawed vessels because if not, we'd all just be useless. 
no matter how eloquent, no matter how smart, no matter how capable, no matter how organized, no matter how intelligent, thank God he can use flawed vessels or else we'd all be useless. The whole point of God's message to Judah today is that they had everything backwards. What they perceived to be in their benefit on a material plane was the very thing that was sabotaging their spiritual success. And to understand this takes eyes of faith, a willingness to hold the word of God above what I even perceive with my own senses and what my emotions and sensibilities might drive me into. But where this faith exists, there will be grace. There will be blessing. James tells us this. I don't know that it could be much clearer than James chapter 4 in this regard. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. On this day in Jeremiah 44, God called the people unto humility. He sought once again to bring them to a place of repentance where they would, where they would bring themselves underneath or in alignment with Him. And they hardened themselves. So God began to resist them again, declaring that His name would not so much as be uttered from their lips and they would be consumed. They had already fallen into spiritual darkness of their own pride and their haughty spirit would bring them to their own destruction. And brethren, may it never once be named among us. May humility prevail in our midst. May we ever operate under a sober-minded understanding of our own limitations and unworthiness. That anything which we have is merely an extension of of the grace of God on our behalf. And so let us stay deeply sensitive to the word of the Lord, remain ever aware of our own potential for self-deception, and live in a moment-by-moment determination to walk with God and to live out the power of God in our lives so that anything that we would accomplish redounds to the glory of God. And that's exactly where God wants us. When I am weak, Paul said, 2 Corinthians 12, then am I strong. Why? Because that's where God is glorified. My strength, God says, is made perfect in weakness. Several more points I was tempted to make, but I want to focus on one more this evening. And it's got three sub-points, so you won't be gypped. Point number two. The failure of others should not lead us unto hypocritical judgment, but unto, and I'm going to give you three points here. I want to focus in... I, I, the first point focused in on you. I hope it focused in on you. And as we talked about judgment, we talked about society, we talked about perhaps your friends and loved ones, whatnot, but I don't, I want to be careful. We need to be careful that the preaching of God's word does not primarily cause us to look at others and say, yeah, they need to be fixed. Right here, this is where we look. This is where, we, where, where, where it has to begin. It must begin. And so we started about humility. That was about you. Now let's talk about response to the failures of others. When we read accounts such as these, our first reaction might be 
frustration. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever, it's kind of like reading a good book where you, you, you know what's happening behind the scenes, but the, the character doesn't. And so you're like, no, 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 don't open that door because you know what's on the other side of that door. Have you ever done that as you've read of Israel? You've read of their wanderings in the wilderness and you say, oh, why didn't they, you know, the, 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 the fire is burning on Mount Sinai. They just heard from the voice of the Lord, the Ten Commandments. And what are they doing? They're fashioning an idol, right? They're fashioning an idol and saying, these be thy gods, O Israel, which brought... What are they doing? Don't, don't they have any... They were just there. They just heard the voice of the Lord. They just begged Moses, never let the Lord speak to us again or else we die. And they have so quickly lost the fear of the Lord. And we can be tempted to roll over into... a. a a judgmentalism where we look at them as we've mentioned several times throughout and say how could they possibly without looking at me and saying am I possibly? It quickly rolls over into well, well since they missed something so obvious they deserve everything they get so I hope the hammer falls on them hard right? Get them God. And then this attitude carries over beyond just the nation of Israel and the Bible and perhaps it gets to the people of today and I give someone a tract and they laugh at my face and throw it back and I say, okay, burn then. Or a member of the church goes astray and we say, well, if you're going to be like that, just uh, I, I give you to Satan, enjoy God's judgment. Or we see those who are doing true evil in the world today in positions of power and we hope for God's greatest judgments upon them and it gives us some pleasure to think of it. And God forbid that this should be our attitude. The difference between blessing and cursing is really not that great. It's a decision here and a decision there. It's that fork in the road. One man takes that path, one man takes that path, one man is blessed, one man is, is cursed. It's a decision sometimes. Sometimes, and perhaps you've seen this with friends, family, loved ones, maybe yourself, a decision that led to a decision that led to a decision. And it was like, have you ever just seen someone hanging by a thread? And you've, you've, you've talked to them and you've given them the word of God and they're just, they're, they're right there. And they're, they might go that way and they might go that way and you don't know which, but you know that their entire life might hang on that decision. I see it at the jail all the time. And it's like you're calling people back from the edge and they're right there. And you're calling them back from the edge. And one decision and they step over. Or one decision and they've stepped back. Sometimes that's all it is, brethren. And maybe you've made the right decision. Maybe you've made the wrong one at times. They're not always life-defining life, uh, decisions. There's, there's, there's room for repentance. There's room. There's always room for repentance until the Lord takes us home but they might be life-changing decisions. And those of you who have lived a little while know that the difference is not always a point of abject rebellion. Sometimes these decisions aren't made with a yell like we read tonight in Jeremiah 44. Hey, we will disobey the Lord. Sometimes the decision is made with a whisper. To this end, we need to have very, a very careful mindset as we approach those who we believe are living in error. And that mindset begins with our own humility, with our own rightness, with a fear of God and humility to reject the temptation to stand over them in judgment ourselves. Jesus' warnings are stern about this. We, uh, it's probably one of the least 
uh, the, the most misquoted verses in all the Bible in Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2, but they're there. They may be often misunderstood, misapplied, and misquoted, but they are there. Judge not, that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye, are, ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured unto you again. The idea of not judging, as I said, one of the most misinterpreted concepts in the Bible, this does not mean that we cannot express God's judgments to others. The Bible's judgments, that's the Bible's judgments. Those aren't mine. Sin is sin, righteousness is righteousness. It does not mean that we cannot call things what they are that we cannot call sin, sin, that we cannot call uh, uh, righteousness, righteousness. It does not mean that we cannot identify the fruit of a person's life and treat them in consistency with the fruit of their lives so that if somebody claims to be a believer but is walking in carnality, to treat them as an unbeliever is not inconsistent with their, the fruit of their life in the manner of, of, of their particular place. But it does mean that we ought not ever place upon ourselves or others the right of judging hearts motives and intentions. You don't know what's in their heart. You don't know their motives. You don't know their intentions unless they've expressed them to you. To assume I know why a person does what he does, to assume I understand the battle that may or may not rage inside of him, to assume I understand the path that brought him to that point, to assume upon just how hard he may or may not be fighting against some impulses or decisions, to assess myself to have some measure of moral or spiritual superiority over him because of his decisions versus yours. To assume upon his state or his condition, these are judgments which are not my right to impose. James warns us as well, James 2 verse 13, for he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. This echoes the idea from Matthew 7 which we just read that with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. We rejoice in God's long-suffering and His patience. If we want that grace and that patience, then we would certainly do well to approach others with the same. So then where does this put us? Well, we get a fairly good picture of this in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual... Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. This passage speaks specifically toward the spiritual restoration of a wayward brother. But let's broaden the principle out a little bit here because it broadens quite well by considering these three sub-points this evening. Point number one, the failures of others should not lead us unto hypocritical judgment but unto determined restoration. Humble obedience and a keen understanding of humanity's tendency unto failure first drives me to have a mind always directed not toward casting people out, but toward bringing people in. If a man be overtaken in a fault, the scriptures tell us, restore such an one. Lead him unto, call him unto, and lead him unto spiritual healing. Draw him into the healing waters of the word of God and the spirit of our God. We're not drawing him into inquisition. We're drawing him into healing. For the unbeliever, the only thing that can do that for them, of course, is the spring of living waters. 
found through believing the gospel. For the believer, this spiritual restoration, James 5 speaks of confessions of faults, spiritual healing, accountability, humility, forgiveness. Right along with this, however, in Galatians 6 is a careful warning. Considering thyself, it says, lest thou also be tempted. Number two, the failures of others should not lead us unto hypocritical judgment, but unto humble introspection. The sins and failures of others, believer and unbeliever alike, should draw us unto careful and humble examination of our own lives. Jeremiah 44, for all that we see the righteous judgments of God, the consistency of God, the faithfulness of God, not just to bless, but also to judge. All of these things are there. For all that we see the reflections in our society of a, of a backwards culture, all of those things, let it, let it always remind you to look inside, to do a self-audit of where you are with God. How many choices need to be different in my life to go from being considered a good man to an evil man? How long do I need to lose focus to start down a slippery slope that would lead to moral and spiritual ruin? What separates me from those who have made such choices? Is it really that I'm that much better of a man? Is it that I'm made from better spiritual stock? No. It's not. Of course, we think of David, right? A man who, at certain points in his life, made decisions, and those decisions fundamentally altered his life, his spiritual life, his physical life. He made disgraceful decisions that didn't just cost him, it cost the life of thousands in Israel. But can we acknowledge that the man David is more than just the sum of his bad decisions? Can we acknowledge how much of the Psalms are written by that man that made those decisions. We've been studying Hebrews 11, a chapter on faith, and we've seen people made it there who would say, why are they in that chapter? Why is Barak in that chapter? Why is Samson in that chapter? What's going on with Jephthah being in that chapter? There's a lot of other people I could have put into that chapter that aren't in that chapter that I would have thought, let's put him in before I put Samson in. Let's put him in before I put Barak in. But they're there. Can we acknowledge that they made terrible decisions and there were grave consequences for those decisions? Don't, don't lose that. But can we also simultaneously acknowledge Faith. Consider yourself Christian when you find a fallen brother. Consider yourself Christian when you see the evil people in this world. When you listen to politicians, consider yourself. Lest you also be tempted. And know this, that if you think yourself to be something when you are nothing, you are only deceiving yourself. Third point, the failures of others should not lead us unto hypocritical judgment, but unto careful separation. All of this in place, we must understand that care and consideration in judgment, restoration, and humble introspection is essential. None of this means we throw out protections or personal purity. In Jesus' teaching on discipline in the assembly, Matthew 18, he speaks of confronting an offender, right? And he says, first, a, a brother that has offended you, you go to him individually. And then you take a, a, a small group, two or three. 
And then if he will not regard you, then you bring him before the assembly. And if a man at fault will not repent, then he's to be treated, verse 17 says, as a heathen and a publican man. This is not meaning that we give him nasty looks and we deny him interaction. No rightly adjusted believer does that to unbelievers. If you look at believers and you give them nasty looks and you withhold them uh, uh, any sort of uh, interaction simply because they're unbelievers, then there's something wrong with how you're interacting with unbelievers, right? But rather, you treat them like an unbeliever. You don't assume upon their spiritual condition because they're not bearing the fruit of, of a rightly adjusted spiritual person. You keep the gospel before their ears because they aren't acting like a believer, right? Paul says a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 5, that if a believer is living in open sin, the church separates from that believer for the sake of the purity of the body, and even with an eye toward humble restoration, should they ever be willing to seek it. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Have no company with the man. Keep yourself pure, but always with an eye toward restoration. Can, and humility gives us this balance, brethren. It is humility that gives us the balance by which we keep ourselves pure from the, 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 the possible taint of their sin while simultaneously remaining open to their restoration. What the nation lacked on this day was the humility to see their own sinfulness. Their pride and hard hearts turned everything on, on its head in their lives. They operated in the darkness of their own hardness. May it not be so with us. May we ever live under the supremacy, the reign of humility. May it reign in our hearts at all times. May our hearts be filled with patience with care, with an eye to draw men unto the truth. May we ever understand our own limitations, our own unworthiness, and the reality that it is often a very small step from spiritual success to spiritual ruin. May this fill our hearts with a godly fear and a determination that we are going to stick close to the Word of God, that we are going to remain pure, that our desire for restoration is not going to bring about in us compromise, while simultaneously our desire to remain pure is not going to harden ourselves against restoration. Humility. May this fill our hearts with a determination to stick close to the Word of God, which is the great spiritual cleansing agent, the washing of the water by the Word. And by this, may we live lives, spiritual lives, spiritually successful lives in the grace that comes on the authority of the Word of God to those who will be humble. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.